0: Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children in special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. Welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show with your host, Diane Kennedy, myself, and Rebecca Banks. Rebecca, are you there?
1: I am. Hi there.
0: Wonderful. And we have got just an extraordinary guest tonight. I mean, I don't know if, if uh, Rebecca and I can keep keep our feet on the ground tonight because this is one of our all-time favorites. For over 12 years as we've worked in the disability community, we have referred to Michelle Garcia Winner's work. She is a speech-language pathologist who specializes in the treatment of individuals with social cognitive deficits and with those diagnoses such as high functioning autism, Asperger's syndrome, nonverbal learning disorder, giftedness twice exceptional, ADHD, Michelle pretty much covers it all. She began teaching social thinking back in 1995 to brighter students when she went to work for a high school district as the district speech language pathologist. Social thinking was born out of a necessity as a way to reach those bright but socially clueless students. Michelle has also um, authored several publications, just so uh, too many for us to name here, but some of her books that we're going to be talking about tonight are her critically acclaimed book, Social Thinking at Work, um, a book we're very excited about. And she also speaks internationally. She has the Superflex program that you're going to hear about tonight, How to Be a Social Detective. There's so many publications, and we could just recommend them all. Every time I go to her website, I can't stop. Um, I, I can't get off of there because there's so many um, wonderful resources. Michelle, as we mentioned, coined the term social thinking and she pioneered the related treatment approach. She also was awarded a Congressional Certificate of Special Recognition in 2008. Michelle, welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show.
2: Thank you very much. Glad we are to be here. so
0: excited. We are so excited to have you here tonight, and we have so much to talk about. The first thing we want to do, because believe it or not, I find it hard to believe, but there are people that don't understand the concept social thinking. And if you could tell for our listeners, sort of explain the concept and how it uh, became a central theme for you in your work.
2: Yeah, so I started in the field of uh, working with people with autism. That's actually why I got into speech pathology back in the late 70s. And back then, we uh, were really looking at people with, you know, quite severe issues with communication, nonverbal, minimally verbal folks. And I worked with them for years and um, was, you know, became a good observer of what was, going on with them and learned that we really needed to do a behaviorally-based social skills approach with them. They didn't have language, they had difficulty thinking about thinking, so we needed to teach them a skill, reinforce that skill, and appreciate that the social skill they were producing wasn't really very refined, but it was good enough for us to give them credit for the effort they were making, and we appreciated that, and that's what we called good social skills, is they were trying to do things like say hi or give eye contact, but it didn't feel or look like what typical people were using, but we could tell easily that they had such significant issues that we weren't really too concerned about that. And then I ended up, I worked for years in cognitive rehabilitation after that, working with head injury and stroke. And learned a lot about higher functioning challenges, what happens to people when they lose their skills, um, who started from a pretty typically developing point of view or quite bright, and learned a lot about how the brain is organized and how we teach concrete um, concepts to try to help these guys regain more abstract thinking. And then in 1995, I decided to work in the high schools because my daughters were now school age. I wanted to be on the school schedule. It was really that simple for me. And so I started working at a high school, and some of the first kids I was seeing on my caseload were these kids who had social skills problems, but they had a lot of language. Uh, they were kids who were mostly included. They had a lot of language. Um, they had solid intelligence to gifted intelligence and their goals were social goals were very behavioral. Teach a skill, reward that behavior, and the idea was they'll do the skill. And it was fascinating as I worked with them because they weren't doing the skill. They were arguing as to why they should bother doing the skill and that they really weren't very interested in having to learn this stuff. So it got me really thinking because I realized that in their refusal to kind of take this work on or take on learning more about their social skills, that they were actually frustrating me. And the whole point of using social skills is to keep people from getting frustrated being with you, or at least pro-social social social skills. And so I started thinking more about this whole idea of teaching kids behaviorally um, and, you know, realizing, and of course now it's been many years since I developed that and I've, you know, matured a lot in my thinking. But, you know, the whole idea is that um, when you and I look at typically developing or very, you know, what we call, for lack of better words, very um, high functioning people with some social um, challenges, that it's not good enough to just produce a skill, that, that we have to profu- produce refinements, uh, we have to use nuance in how we communicate and the way that we decide how to say hi to somebody, whether we can say what's up or hey or hi or hello, really has to do with the thinking part. And how we think about that person, how we think about the situation, how we want people to think about us, before we actually go into those social behaviors. Um, and so that's what social thinking started, what I started to do, and I called it social thinking, which is we got to focus on the thinking part of our being and other people's being that is relevant because it decide- it, we, we shape our own behavior based on how we want people to think about us. So if we want to make a good impression to a teacher, we typically don't go in and just go, hey, what's up? You know, we usually, if we're going to acknowledge them, we do it in a little bit more formal way. And that it would be very different from how we might greet somebody walking in the hall or on the, on the playground. And so it's through that refinement that we come to our thinking. Um, or through the thinking that we come to that refinement. So anyhow, I broke social skills apart from the thinking part and have for years been teaching kids more about the thinking, but it's not just my thinking, your thinking. It's the whole point of it is also emotional. When you really look at why we do social behaviors, such as, you know, why do we do things that show politeness or respect, the bottom line is because it affects how we feel about how we feel. And so what I do affects how you feel. How you feel affects how I feel about myself. So at the end of the day, we do the thinking. The thinking leads to our social skills. Our social skills lead to an emotional response. So if you really want to get deep on this, you'll say the whole point of social skills is for how we affect each other's emotions. So we have to look at these kind of three steps in the chain, the thinking, the skill, the behaviors, the social behaviors, social skills, and then our thinking. And so that fascinates me because most treatments, even today, people mostly only focus on the middle step, the social skills, Mm -hmm. without understanding the depth and complexity to it. And as you were talking,
1: Michelle, I couldn't help but think that, um, especially when you get to the emotion and having them take perspective and develop awareness of perspective, that we typically associate that type of challenge with autism. But um, so many of our listeners Uh, or have associated that kind of an impairment with autism, but we're hearing more and more about social skills impairments with other disorders
2: and other labels.
1: Can you help us um, kind of clear up, are the social impairments different, let's say, in a child with ADHD versus a child with um, Asperger's syndrome, or are these degrees of the same impairments? Can you kind of... um, kind of clarify whether the social processing challenges are similar regardless of the label?
2: Yeah, so you know, it's interesting when you work in the schools as a professional, you are charged with the mission of serving every diagnostic label under the sun. And so as a speech pathologist working in the schools, parents would bring me reams of work, uh, reams of information about every diagnostic label associated with their kid. So I had kids with midline deficiencies versus autism spectrum, I had kids labeled ADHD, I had um, kids who were presenting with significant social problems but their primary diagnosis with a- was, aspir- was um, anxiety. And I became a little bit fascinated in that because when I got to know the kid, when I really looked at these kids and it dismissed their labels, there was really core social challenges that were strongly related between all of them but in the medical community or the different communities that diagnose, we kept giving different labels out and so i I quickly decided that um, it wasn't going to be effective to treatment based on labels, because to be honest, mm-hmm. I really struggle with understanding why some of my students get diagnosed with Asperger's and others get diagnosed at times with ADHD, because, you know, you take a kid with Asperger's, some of them, and you take some of these kids with ADHD, and they actually present with such mirrored symptomology. So then I'm like, okay, well, in our medical community, based on our own particular specialties, we create bias diagnostically. If I'm a specialist in yeah. ADHD then I'm going to see everybody through the prism of ADHD. If I'm a specialist in Asperger's, I'm much more likely to diagnose versus Asperger's and then nonverbal learning disability. And so it was really fascinating to me as kind of the outsider to the diagnostic system as a speech pathologist and not involved in the medical. I really saw that we were making kind of sometimes mountains out of molehills and that really what I cared about was who is this kid? how do i work with them so he can get better or she can get better and i'm i'm not going to put all the importance in the label i'm going to look at the common the core deficits or the core challenges and their core strengths and so through that process i actually find that i really want to look at that person holistically i want to get better understanding of their social knowledge and then, when looking at social knowledge, you don't just look at how's this person do on the playground because the classroom experience is an incredibly social place mm-hmm. we're all sharing thoughts about each other. how you regulate in a classroom, how do you manage your frustration? Are you understanding that just because um, you're bored doesn't mean that you're unique that there's a whole lot of kids bored in this class right now how do we how are they using coping strategies and um, that you know, how do how does everybody get along today? I did an assessment on a girl who's one of these very gifted kids, nuanced challenges I describe, you know, subtle issues but significant, and she just shuts down. She had to be homeschooled last year because mm. she doesn't understand how to cope with boredom and she doesn't understand how to uh, cope with frustration or you know the executive functioning challenges she has. So I, I in my work, I honestly don't pay a lot of attention to labels, I see people on a, a spectrum of social cognitive functioning, um, and often you'll see some of their, our, higher, our, our kids who present with more subtle or nuanced challenges, you see a lot of executive functioning challenges, and I wonder about, like, the perspective-taking issues, because it can explain to you um, the core... Identity of perspective taking they can talk about I know that person's thoughts are different from my thoughts But in the moment of interaction that that almost goes out the window and they some of our guys stay very self-focused Even though they realize Mm -hmm. other people may be having thoughts about them outside of the situation Once they get into actually relating they have a hard time monitoring that and they become Kind of what we humor, you know, we call in superflex a one-sided fit. They really just talk about their own thing um and so we look at all these different dimensions of a person related to sure. it. So, yeah.
1: As a teacher, you mentioned, I mean, as a teacher in the classroom, I was really intrigued when you talked about that the playground rules are very different. And with a push towards social learning in the classroom through collaboration, we're challenging these kids to behave in ways socially that they're so unaccustomed and oftentimes developmentally not ready for and yes. when you talked about the nuanced challenges, I'm an English teacher, and um, at high school, a lot of times I'll have children who can talk about why a character would make the choice to behave a certain way, but in the moment within the social grouping of the classroom cannot pull it off at the personal right. level. And right. so when you see that disconnect, so many teachers, I think, are unaware of of um, just how how the whole issue of social thinking goes and focus on social behaviors rather than understanding what social thinking is that that at times we miss opportunities to coach children and students through these issues as well so I was really glad to hear you talk about that
2: there's a tendency to believe that if a kid can explain a perspective then they should be able to behave based on their explanation so if they understand that what somebody did, you know, a character in a book made someone else feel really frustrated, then people think, well, logically then in the classroom, he understands that his behavior makes people feel frustrated. The difference, I believe, is when you're reading in a book, you have time. First of all, you're not involved in the hurricane, your own social tornado. And Mm -hmm. so you're the, I call it voyeuristic insight. Like You're able to watch somebody else and, and be able to understand what's going on But when you're in the middle of your own social tornado where you've got to, in that second, because you literally have milliseconds to understand what's going on around you, process and react uh, to what's going on. And in that, it's not like reading a book where you're voyeuristic. You're in the middle of it. You've got your own sense of being involved in it, and you can't think straight, especially these kids who have more of these multi you know um, executive functioning as trouble with multitasking cuz socially we we often think of executive functioning as something you do at homework or multitasking for a long term project but there's also social executive functioning to be able the ability to hold your thoughts their thoughts read intentions understand people are reading your own intentions how you code your behavior how you code your face and that just can be really dynamic and overwhelming you also brought up that we, we more and more, um, or at least we state more and more, we value collaboration in the classroom. Here's some good news. The um, Common Core Standards, which 48 of the 52 states have now adopted, yeah. have these anchor standards, and one of the anchor standards that's coming out, one of the, an anchor standard is, is one of the core standards that, that right. is tracked across all the different ages. Um, One of the core anchor standards now is on listening and collaboration, so Mm -hmm. what's really cool is that most of our states now have adopted this, which means the children in a classroom, whether you're in kindergarten all the way up through high school, are supposed to be tracked for how well they're participating in different forms of conversational and um, collaborative language. And so it gives us a little bit of an in for getting um, the attention for services around social relationship building, uh, which previously many states had not been acknowledging as a critical part of their standards. So I'm excited about it because it does give us a little bit more room for having a discussion about some of our kids who have tremendous knowledge about certain topics but they don't know how to collaborate or even withhold their thoughts about their knowledge at certain times in class (laughs) and can be incredibly frustrating to the peers in the class, the teachers, Um, and is an incredibly important skill for when you go on to a job in your adult years. If you only are talking about your own point of view, you're not considered a great member of a team. And even if you can be, if you're really bright, you know, unless you're super, super exceptional like some famous people have become, you know, in their fields, um, most most of our folks, you know, no matter how bright you are, they still want you to be able to understand how to be in a meeting, hold your thoughts in your head, understand someone else's Mm -hmm. point of view. At times even, tell someone you appreciate their point of view even when you don't agree with it. And how do we build all that knowledge? Because it doesn't... Like, one of the things I teach quite a bit is, you know, these skills don't pop on. It's not like a light switch. You know, sometimes people think, oh, I'll I'll figure that out when I get older. And I work with my kids transitioning in adulthood, my my students, saying, you know, there is no light switch that's going to pop on when you go to college and make you figure this out. You know, the roots of this go back even to playing in the sandbox when you're, you know, two, three, four years old. And your brain didn't make this easy for you. You never got that practice. So we've got to start practicing some of, you know, this reacting in the moment now.
1: Well, let me ask you a quick follow-up before we move to the next question. And you mentioned the Common Core standards, which uh, so many states have adopted. And as we're looking at the, the listening and the collaboration and the speaking and listening standard, how many, and this is just a personal opinion, but do you think that there is, a burgeoning awareness or growing awareness of social executive functioning um, in terms of um, IEPs and things like that, or is that still an area where there's a lot of work to be done in terms of increasing the awareness of
2: social yeah, executive so functioning? Yeah, so this is a direction our work is going quite heavily. We're, we're uh, actually, my colleagues, Pamela Crook and Stephanie Madrigal and myself, are uh, We're doing a lot of writing on this. We're putting on two new workshop days. Um, And we really think, um, you know, in terms of calling it social executive functioning, I think in general, uh, even some of the most skilled people aren't really familiar with that term. Um, Mm -hmm. There's very little study about in the mental health or educational professions. there's, There's no one who really, there's no profession that studies this. Psychiatrists, psychologists, counselor, teacher, uh-huh. speech pathologists, behaviorists, occupational therapists, none of us really study the development of the social mind and how multitasking that mind is. So from that language, like social executive functioning, most people would not relate to it. How social is used in the standards um, is really a core part of what we try to teach because we, you know, we really define social quite broadly. Social is, you know, just in being in the presence of another person, you're in a social moment. It doesn't mean you're trying to make a good impression, a bad impression. It's just the fact that when you're with other people, people are thinking about each other. You can be completely quiet on an elevator and you're still in a social place, if another person's on that elevator. And then we look at all the core parts of our curriculum that are involved in social. So. You know, um, what part of our new talks we're going over like four key anchor standards. Uh, One is if you get into like reading, uh, the reading anchor standards, there's a standard on point of view. We expect children to be learning about point of view all the way back to kindergarten. Um, Mm -hmm. You can't understand point of view if you don't understand how people have different thought mechanisms how point of view is not something you're going to convince someone to change that it's just a point of view and um how children develop it so there's a there's a lot socially loaded in our curriculum in in reading comprehension written expression you have to write to an audience you have to narrate a story you have to make things make sense to someone else that's completely the exploration of the social mind but we call it writing and so people right. think, well, reading is different, and writing is different, and social is something on the playground. So a lot of our work is like exploding the code of the um, Common Core standards now. And so we're taking, we've taken four of these standards, and you know we'll be presenting on this. Ultimately, we'll write on it, but we're exploding like what are all the things kids needed to know from birth to five that wow. they learned implicitly in order to be able to demonstrate it explicitly through reading, through writing. Um, You know, vocabulary. Vocabulary is about learning nuance. It's about understanding semantics. It's about knowing how to choose a word to affect someone's thought. How do you choose one of these many words that mean the same thing? Why do we choose one word over the other? It's how we want to affect you in very subtle ways. And that's all geared on the social mind. But our, cur- but our, our teachers, are not. Te- our administrators or people who develop curriculum policy, they don't necessarily see it that way. They just see, okay, reading is different from writing. So if you have a reading <laughs> problem, you go to a reading specialist. If you go to a writer, you know, writing problem, you go to a writing specialist. If you've got a social problem, you go to a speech pathologist. And I'm like, right. well, maybe there's like these core common issues like... You know higher level perspective taking that we need to study the characters in a book and then understand that we're like a character in a book so at that moment of social interaction which character did we appear to be like let's take our reading let's understand that comprehension let's apply it to ourselves let's develop our own social awareness of our own behavior and start to identify us back to some of our stories and now we take our curriculum and make it come to life and we make kids see that they're part of their own life story and relate it all through that, that different way, which speaks well to the gifted and talented because it takes it to another level of critical thinking for them. Yes. Yeah. Well, and absolutely. I'm sorry, Rebecca, did you? Did no, I, no, no, not, okay. no. Okay. I
0: was saying, <laughs> yeah,
1: it does take it to a whole new level.
0: Absolutely. And one thing I wanted to mention before, um, as I, actually as I get into this next question, is Dr. Linda Silverman, who's one of the top experts in giftedness, and we've had her on the program before, she has a, a wonderful um, little piece she writes about how unique uh, the gifted individual is. And one of the things she says is that 98% of the time your truth-telling has got you into trouble, and as i was listening to you speak i thought of that and i thought you know much of what we've learned as we've worked on a bright not broken and learned about the gifted side of things is that these gifted kids also share many of these social difficulties so dr <laughs> silverman was exactly right their truth telling gets them into trouble which would definitely be a social impairment of sorts and um yet they're not understood that they would even have a social difficulty. So as we look at these two E-kids who have above-average IQs, or often they can even excel in their areas of special interest, I think you mentioned that, it makes their challenges even more difficult to spot. What would you say is the most important thing? And I know there's several, but if you could narrow it down to a really critical area, maybe even a couple things um, to watch for in the classroom or even at home so that these kids don't, fall through the cracks and somebody realizes that their challenges need to be worked on from a social perspective?
2: Yeah. So I think probably the number one most important thing, and this is for us adults, is we have to do a paradigm shift. We have a real misunderstanding in our country about what intelligence is. And we think that if you have a high IQ, that means you're globally smart, and I work from a very strong multiple intelligence model, and what we do to measure intelligence is we focus on aspects of our intelligence which are more likely to breed academic success. but we don't focus on acad- aspects of our intelligible intelligence I'm sorry, that may lead to world success. So what I mean by that is social intelligence. I read recently that social intelligence overlaps with academic intelligence, or more of our IQ intelligence, by only 5%. It's a really small overlap. But because of our misunderstanding in our country about intelligence, we have presumptions that if a kid is gifted and talented, that means they should be socially as bright as they are good at being able to read a book quickly, a factual book. or. Even, you know, even a fiction book, some of our kids can do, many of our kids can do quite well. And so the first thing we have to do is shift our paradigm as to what intelligence is and start understanding that some of the most important parts of our intelligence, not that giftedness isn't important, but social intelligence, they never created a test for because it was too hard to capture on paper. Um, We also don't have an intelligence test for grit and motivation but some of the most important contributors to our adult success are tenacity, just your ability to bear down and get through the junk, the crappy work that you never wanted to do in the first place, and how do you, how do you have that resilience to get through something that you don't want to do or that you find difficult. We have no measures of that, but that's one of the most predict- strong predictors of adult success. And and as well as social, I mean, these are some of the, what's fascinating to me is that test scores are not a predictor of adult success. That often it's your ability to understand other people's minds and adapt your behavior and um, emotionally regulate, as well as your grit and tenacity, that are some of the most important um, uh, drivers of that. And then how do we get teachers to understand that? Because they, and, and parents, because they presume, well, my kid's really smart, so he should understand this, so I'm just going to punish him for not behaving the right way, and that should make him learn to do it, without understanding that maybe this kid socially, from a cognitive point of view, is is actually quite a bit more limited than his IQ represents. I, I'm...
0: Absolutely. So excited to hear you say that, and and you're right about with a gifted child, we're looking at their IQ thinking that it's global, and I think uh, in my own experience with my son, it's the frustration I felt as a parent, and I couldn't find the words for to say, you know, although he may be extremely gifted over here in this area, he's absolutely paralyzed over Mm -hmm. here, and you know i mean how is that mm. iq going to be accessed and help him if if he can't leave my living room floor and right. and right. you know and that's i mean that would make more sense to somebody you know to understand but yet in a classroom you know they're they're not looking at that they're looking at what he can do and not these underlying right. hidden right. hidden difficulties And and another thing I wanted to bring up there, because it just really jumped out at me, it's something we talked about in our first book, The ADHD Autism Connection, and we have certainly continued to follow it up here, and that is in some of the thinking, and and I'm glad to see that there's getting to be more social awareness, as uh, Rebecca mentioned, in ADHD. But one of the little pet peeves has been that the school of thought has been Uh, mentioned in ADHD that these kids versus autism, these kids know what to do, they're just Mm -hmm. not doing it, where it's sort of like a pass is given to autism because we know, okay, that's a social communication difficulty. They don't know what to do. And I think it's so important to not make that assumption.
2: Yeah. So in our writings, you know, I think it is relevant here, we talk a lot about the difference between social rules and social nuance and so kids who are more um, easily defined or you know to be honest you don't need to have a psychologist diagnose a lot of kids with autism you actually just go to the parking lot or the grocery store and you go who's that kid with autism Um, (laughs) that you know it's And the reason that we can diagnose them in the parking lot at times, just in the community, peers, you know, different members of the community, we are all identifying each other's social skills. It's one of the first things we look at past gender, age, race, you know, all the automatic things we look at. We then start looking at someone's social skills. And we're actually quite refined in how we assess people's abilities. And people who don't understand the social rules jump out at us. And so we assume that teaching social is all about teaching the rules. But when we get to these kids who have more knowledge and they understand the core, the core background of perspective, they understand I have a thought, you have a thought, we manipulate each other's thoughts, what they know the rules, what they're missing is the subtleties of the rules, the nuance. And so with these higher kids, um, we need to teach them the nuance, like I mentioned earlier, like the different codes of greeting, how to read the hidden social rules, how to understand that, you know what, all of us are, as a, are a little bit socially paranoid. We're not, you know, as a mass, as a as a humanity, we're not clinically paranoid, but we all kind of walk into a room thinking, you know... I'm not sure these people are going to like me. I'm a little concerned about that, so I really need to work to, you know, ingratiate myself to these people. That there's these common ways in which we all think we want to be socially validated. So what are the subtle little tricks? You know the social rules. You're supposed to say hi. You're supposed to talk to someone. But what's the nuance? How do you enter mm-hmm. into the conversation in a subtle way, so you, you know, where you're not rolling people over? So one of the challenges in our treatment is that a lot of people think, well, he knows the rules, so I have nothing to teach him. But it's not the rule that he's missing; it's the, the subtleties of how do we adapt that? How do you talk to a peer you're sitting next to in a classroom when you just want to become friends with them? How do you change your conversation when you want to flirt with them without them thinking you're stalking them? You know, those are all the subtleties, and that's what I'm fascinated in. It's not so much the rules as a nuance and that's what we don't know how to talk about we haven't we're trying to create the language for it in social thinking so that people can see the difference yeah. and then people will go well, the nuance doesn't matter it's just a mild issue issue and i'm like oh no no the peers are diagnosing like crazy all the people who are missing the nuance in fact i think when the research is done you'll find that the kids who are bullied the most are the kids who miss the nuance the kids who obviously miss the social rules kids actually have enough empathy for them because they know their mm-hmm. brains just can't figure it out that they're just not as hard on those kids. But it's the kids who present as really bright. They obviously show their knowledge, many parts of their knowledge in many different ways. We're very unforgiving of that group. And we can make their lives hell by bullying them, picking on them, because they're missing the subtleties. And so peers tend to give each other a hard time. Not just school-age peers. Look in your work environment. Yes. We do the yes. same thing at work to adults who miss the nuance. And those are clients I'm working with here at the clinic and it's fascinating. You know, really bright people who in some ways are tremendously successful but are coming to the clinic because in other ways they're tremendously not successful. They have no meaningful relationships in their life and they're struggling at work to get promotions because they're not great members of teams.
1: Right, and they may actually see the political structure, but not know how to navigate it. Right, because they may know the rules, but they can't pull off the nuance.
2: Right, and And there um, is, yeah, we're really speaking to this issue now. And but this is very, you know, it's it's as as many years as I've been teaching this and learning, I'm still learning. And so, you know, what I do naturally in the clinic, and then learning how to speak about it to share it with. People in the audience, or people who may read my materials, it takes a long time to percolate how to organize all this knowledge, or what you know the knowledge I'm I'm amassing. Other people are amassing, and so this speaking about the difference between rules and nuance is a relatively new concept. But schools tend to go, well, it's a mild problem, so we don't qualify kids or we don't provide services for mild problems. But then I point out, wait a minute, it's not mild because all the peers have already assessed that he's not competent. From a communication point of view, and he's not a great member of your classroom in terms of working in groups. So we have a significant issue here.
1: That becomes an economic issue like, later on, because these these are also they become individuals and adults who who don't do well in the work environment, who who may end up moving from job to job, and finally, um, just because the the lack of a the lack of success eventually takes its toll on them emotionally as well.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say that. I would say it's not only economic. That actually even more than that Mm -hmm. in some ways is the mental health because some of our kids are graduating from school and they've got some great ability, but they don't have very many competencies. Right. And we get lost in their islands of intelligence or their ability to read at a grade level way beyond and we fail to see that this person actually can't write a paper without supervision this person can't organize their time without help and so they we kind of push them through and help them because they're so bright. but then they go off some of them go off to universities without the ability to create social relationships without the ability to work independently And what's going to give now is their mental health as they become more and more Mm -hmm. challenged in terms of who they are um, as a person and how they feel about themselves when they're not being easily validated by their peers or even their teachers.
1: I'm reminded of what Dr. Lorna Wing says, and she refers to it in terms of the executive functioning um, with the social communication disorder but um, of autism, but she says their lives become a hellish nightmare because they can't pull off what they need to pull off, and they're so aware of.
2: Yeah, and I, I think um, that's an important point, too, in terms of different levels of autism. There's an article on my website. My website's socialthinking.com we have a lot of free materials and if you go to what social thinking and you read the articles right at the top of the left-hand index there's one on the social communication uh, uh, social thinking social communication profile but one of the things we also find is that the the less aware you are of other people the less you aware you are of yourself the less awareness Mm -hmm. you have of how people are uh, thinking about you the safer you are from a mental health perspective in some ways. And with our gifted kids who have awareness that they're not really fitting in, they're really the most at risk for serious mental health challenges of anxiety, mm-hmm. depression. They also, as you know, side a lot on the, the side of perfectionism. They're very hard on themselves. They don't know how to meet their assignments halfway And so they're a a very at-risk category that we provide very little services for.
1: And they're the ones that that do slip through the cracks because they don't qualify in the education system. Often they don't qualify for uh, the supports and the intervention in in the mental health system. And as a result, they're left to fend for themselves. And so you're right, their needs aren't provided for. And I'm so excited that you're looking at these nuances because I
2: think that that's where there's so much work to be done. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. yeah.
2: So we I, get into some of this. Um, we have a book, you know, you'd mentioned the, our book, Social Thinking in the Work World, which just goes into mm-hmm. how emotional the work setting is, whether we want to admit yeah. it or not. Um, some of the best ahas i 've had from my adult clients is that they are actually not completely going to work to work they 're going to work to form social relationships so that people will accept their work in the work environment um, yeah, and then we 've also written one which truly really gets more into the nuances and it 's called socially curious, curiously social a guidebook for, te- a social thinking guidebook for teens. And we, we came out with that book and then we intentionally took all the labels off the cover of it because people had been asking for us to just get it to all kids and not to have any labels wrapped around oh. it. So we have it out, um with, the, you, kids won't read anything about diagnostic labels. They'll just read about, um, the social emotional process of social skills, of sorting out other people's thinking, how, you know, reading intentions. How you understand all these more subtle aspects of the mind.
1: That's a great idea, because uh, kids are so so just hung up on stigma. Anyway, uh, I think you know,
2: teachers should read that as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 uh, won some awards, and you know, it's a book that's being very well received and uh, for getting more nuanced information out there
0: that that sounds like um a wonderful book too and we want to be sure that we uh we list that on our website and our um facebook and our pages of resources of yours we'll be sure to point that out because i think it is important what you said that there's a lot of um a lot of individuals uh, there's there's some parents i know they've been divided between parents before about refusing the label other parents want the label to get the help the understanding but it's more important to cut past all of that disagreement to what are the impairments and how can we help
2: yeah on our website we have a whole lot of free blogs and one of the blogs on my website is about reviewing with kids their learning strengths and weaknesses and it's not about necessarily academic but it's really about understanding your brain makes some things really easy for you your brain makes some learning okay it's fine and some of your learning your brain makes more difficult for you and understanding Um, that it's not expected. Like some of our kids who are gifted, everybody keeps telling them they're smart, so they don't understand that there's some part of their brain that isn't so smart. And how do we start talking to them about the multi-intelligence piece and how they can start learning about, you know, my brain makes this part easy. My brain makes this part a little bit harder, so i got to work at something. i got to work at learning stuff that's harder for me. Um, I find that The gifted you know our twice exceptional group are some of the hardest kids to teach because in some ways they're so used to information coming easily to them that's related to academics that they don't have great learning strategies for working on something their brain doesn't make easy for them like social thinking or social learning and where, if you work with a kid who's kind of more normal intelligence, and they've always had to kind of work a little bit at learning, they're more used to having the grit and tenacity for taking on concepts that don't come easily for them. For them. I think that um,
0: all of your materials, as you said, are just wonderful. I mean, and I I think you're right, Michelle, that this is such an underserved area. I'm so excited to hear that. That you're covering some of these topics, and I hope as everyone educates each other on on your topics and on the things that you're bringing to the light, that um, that we'll all get a little more educated in helping our kids. And speaking about your popularity, and I know um, a couple of uh, friends of ours actually locally have been just raving about your Superflex program. Mm. And I know it's been around for a little while, and it's something you've added to. Tell us what it is and and who it's for and and how it helps.
2: Yeah, so... um Superflex is basically teaching kids that each one of us has a superhero in our mind that is basically our super flexible thinking. And so we call it Superflex. You've got a super flexible mind and we have a visual of a superhero named Superflex who kind of is our coach to our super flexible minds. But our minds don't just have a super flexible thinking entity in them that are every one of us have challenges to our super flexible thinking and so um, one of those challenges might be rock brain. Rock brains also in our mind at times where it makes us get really rigid or get stuck on our own thinking and not see choices or not understanding that problems come in different sizes and can merit different reactions. Um, and this kind of thinking, the kids got really, our students got really into this. They had fun with this concept that they had a superflex and they had a rock brain and Superflex has to have strategies to defeat rock brain, because rock brain has powers. How do we try to take away rock brain's powers? And so we came up with um, Social Town and the Superflex Training Academy to teach how your Superflex can keep learning strategies to quiet down. We started with rock brain, and then when we presented this to the kids, they were going, well, there's more than just rock brain in our brain. And so kids started coming up with different ideas as to what was challenging their thinking. So we have, like, a character called one-sided Sid. One-sided Sid makes you only talk about yourself. We have was funny once. Was funny once makes you think you're hilarious all the time when we only thought it was <laughs> funny once. Um, or... Uh, Oh, gosh, some of the other ones, mean gene. Mean gene makes you act uh, really mean to people um, rather than be flexible and understand their points of view. So we ended up calling those the team of unthinkables, and we had 13 members of the core unthinkable team. And then we set about teaching kids how to empower their mind and create more awareness of their super flex versus their unthinkables. And what happened with that is that it's got – creative juices going, and then kids all around the country, teachers have had kids doing these as, they do this as part of a class, and kids have to come up with more unthinkables that are affecting them. So we get letters every week here from kids, from teachers, from parents about the unthinkables that have been showing up in these kids' minds that are not part of our 13 core team. So like a kid wrote me that he's got the unthinkable Don't Do It Danny in his brain, and Don't Do It Danny tells him not to work during the school day and that he needs a strategy from Superflex to get through don't to get don't do it Danny to defeat the powers of don't do it Danny so he writes us about his strategies are to focus on all the free time he'll have later if he gets to work now and so his prime strategy is reminding himself do the work now so I can play later and then he writes us how much that has been defeating his don't do it Danny and I should share it with other kids so, we got so many of these from the public, and they were wanting to share them with others that we came up with this idea that we could have the public submit to these to us, and we'd consider publishing them in a book so Just two weeks ago, we finally got this book out, and it 's um called it 's about um Superflex Challenging the Unthinkables and we had five hundred and fifty unthinkable submissions, and we ended up choosing ninety two of them. And then what we did is we decided that there's so much power in these unthinkables that we need to teach kids even a better way, like how did Superflex get all those powers? So we just came out with the five-step power plan where we get kids to start learning about, first got to have self-awareness of what's happening to me to decide what unthinkable is even coming into my mm-hmm. brain, so we have the decider. And then I have to be a social detective to figure out what's going on around me, what should be happening, so I start observing my environment more. And then i got to throw the brakes on. i got to really stop and think about the hidden rules so that I understand what it is, you know, not only am I observing and figuring out the situation, but I'm figuring out the hidden rules in the situation so that I can use my flex do body Um, to help me figure out flexible strategies, which strategies I need to do in that situation to help align with what the hidden social rules are and then as i do them i become more aware of how i'm operating in that situation and then i have my cranium coach which coaches me as to if i've done a good job i now start telling myself about the good jobs to remind myself that that strategy worked and i should use it later and if i did not do such a great job cranium coach could say okay you got to keep working on this so you got to be able to observe a little better what's going on around you to get kids into the here and now so We just released this. It's it's just come out on our website. I think we announced it last week. And so we took Superflex, and now we're shifting them into a little more sophisticated approach for third to fifth graders. And with our younger kids, they like Superflex, too, but we're really encouraging that they use it more for self-awareness of their brain and not really for them to get into all this self-regulation as they're not quite ready to take on Um, defeating parts of their brain but building the awareness that their brain has these things that does well for themselves and that their brain also has these challenges that they need to learn the powers of their brain. And it's all about self-regulation. You know, our kids need to learn self-regulation. A lot of our gifted and talented kids have difficulty with emotional regulation and social regulation and so teaching strategies around that. Wow.
0: That sounds... just Let me just say for one second here, as I'm listening, I'm getting a vision of you teaming up with Marvel and maybe doing the adult version of Superflex. <laughs> well,
2: you know, we've had many adults ask us to create the adult version of Superflex, and so... Um, I uh, we're we're working on it a little bit. I don't know when it you know I don't know that it's going to be coming out from us, but we may write a blog about it. Um, as we've had adults really like this idea and how to create it for themselves, we have been really excited because more and more principals and classroom teachers are embracing Superflex for all kids across the entire school so we have this thing called social thinking vocabulary where we break language down and we don't talk about cooperating and negotiating because those are very abstract terms we talk about thinking with your eyes and um, using your understanding where your body is and you know using your eyes to observe what's going on all these different parts to give kids much more explicit instruction about the social world Which is becoming even more important in the digital age when kids are not looking up from their digital equipment to even notice what's going on around them and uh, losing, our our typical kids are losing touch with the importance of face-to-face communication and then they become offended by everybody's lack of paying attention to them but they're also not paying attention to others and how we go back to a social thinking mode for all kids.
1: Right, and that's um, interesting because as technology increases in the classroom, we're setting up situations there that are promoting um,
2: yeah kind of
1: social challenges in the yes. classroom, even as we're working to teach the social
2: Absolutely. skills and awareness. I just had a first grade teacher come up to me and said, Michelle, all day now I'm showing my kids... A computer screen in first grade with all the material on it and I am off to the side talking and they're not really encouraged to look at me do you think that that's good for their brain she said do you think that this is encouraging um, healthy learning and I said well what do you think you're asking the question and she goes I don't think so the kids aren't they're not even encouraged to pay attention to me so we definitely are creating our own challenges with our zealousy towards digital learning and it's not to say digital learning is bad but at the end of the day what really counts and the research shows this too is at the end of the day all these people on digital stuff really want to have a human social relationship face-to-face person-to-person social emotional and how do we keep that alive in the midst of all this
1: Exactly. Well, and when we've talked through this um, interview about social nuances, one thing that's coming up with DSM-5 is a whole new disorder, social communication disorder. And you wrote a wonderful article where you talked about some of the potential dangers. But I'd love to hear um, just your thoughts on this new category and what potential it holds and also perhaps what pitfalls it it may pose.
2: Yes, yeah, so just really quickly, the DSM-5 is trying to more tightly define autism spectrum disorders, um, as they mm-hmm. think that part of these the, the raging numbers of diagnosis is because we're very broad in how we diagnose it. So they're creating a much tighter diagnosis of autism spectrum disorders, and then kids who have social learning challenges but don't meet that diagnosis of autism spectrum that have a history of social problems could potentially now be diagnosed with social communication disorders and from a technical point of view it actually makes a lot of sense the the concern is is that there's no we're not even sure who's going to be diagnosing this and so few people as i said earlier actually you know there is no profession really trained in this more nuanced based communication issues and so what's going to happen and what what are professions doing to be aware hey there's this whole new diagnostic category I was just reading some um, some articles where people have done some research taking the old DSM 4 comparing it to the standards of the DSM 5 and they said somewhere between 25 to 48 percent of the kids currently diagnosed with um, autism spectrum uh, may no longer qualify with the DSM 5 and that they're going to be going into the social communication disordered which is a, a great unknown so even in my field of speech pathology, I've been trying to contact my national organization, our what we call American Association of Speech and Hearing Language Professionals, and um, just saying, are you guys prepared? Because a lot of this is going to fall to speech pathologists, and I'm not getting any emails back. And I'm saying, I just think we as professions need to start preparing. This is going to start May of 2013, and I think it's going to happen. So what's our response? So I think we're very underprepared for the – it's going to be a gradual shift, but mm-hmm. I think more and more kids are going to be diagnosed social communication disordered, and we're all going to have this mission to figure out what to do about it and who's going to provide those services. Is it going to be funded through the schools? I mean, it's, how, how are they going to do it under the eligibility categories? So I'm encouraging that we all start discussing it and bringing it to meetings, you know, with administrators and saying this is going to happen. What are we going to do when parents are coming in saying, here's my kid's diagnosis. We know these problems. It's not a tidy fit under autism eligibility anymore. What are we going to call
1: them?
2: And especially
1: since they've cut services at the schools. Speech-language pathologists are already, their caseloads are enormous, or enormous, excuse me. That's a of students use, but they're huge. And, and like you said, if there's this 20 to 40% increase in the number of diagnoses that shift, yeah. it, it is, it's a conversation everyone needs to be having.
2: Right. And if they're going to fall into the lap of the speech pathologist, you know, one of the benefits of an autism spectrum disorder eligibility is it implies that there needs to be a team of professionals working with a kid. And many of our kids who now will be qualified as social communication disordered will still that many of them have sensory issues many of them have broader learning challenges not being picked up on um, our academic testing that they're still not being able to get the written work done and is there going to be a team related to social communication disordered or is it going to be assumed that just the speech pathologist works on that once a week in a pull-out well, session or a push-in session? To a classroom when the issues are much broader than that and that's what people are writing about now that these are still significant issues even though we're calling them social communication how are we going to respond let's start thinking about the organizational right. response we have within our agencies
1: because with DSM in general our diagnostic system breeds comorbidity and with the new disorder social communication disorder you're going to be left with discovering what are the comorbidities that are common with this and how do we treat the children that show these clusters. And right. it might take right. years for that to emerge. Right. Um, so, yeah,
2: right. definitely. Right. And I... Yeah, uh, we have this funny term comorbid and I like to call them commingled because I actually don't <laughs> think they're exactly freestanding. I think they're, no, they're kind not. of somewhat <laughs> mutually dependent upon each other. So a kid who's racked with sensory issues is probably going to have a harder time socially focusing on or social cognition may be lagging because he can't quite get the energy wrapped up into understanding how to use that other side of, you know, other part of his brain through that. So I keep saying these are yeah. so commingled but we you know yeah. anxiety is not a freestanding extra thing a kid has when they're uh gifted and talented it's almost part of the the package that you get they're commingled so definitely
0: well, Michelle, you are just a wellspring of information. I think we could have you on every week for a month and probably <laughs> not cover
2: everything. <laughs> well, it's fun to just have an open conversation about it and not have to worry about how it's being written in a paragraph. So, <laughs> I would agree with that absolutely. Yeah,
0: I would. Yeah. And 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 that is what I would like our listeners to know is, um, aside from your website, with like you mentioned several free materials, articles, and all kinds of things, and you've got um, workbooks and books for parents, for children, for teachers, but also, um, you do a lot of trainings, and people can find you, um, so tell us a little bit about that and, and how um, how someone could find your trainings and how they can find all your yeah, information.
2: Yeah, I mean, the best way to find, we're, we're actually, at, uh, starting the new school year, we're all over different parts of the country. I actually speak internationally internationally. Um, Um, quite a bit. Um, But during the school year, I'm mostly in the United States or Canada, and you can go to my website, Social Thinking, and look under our conference tab, and you can find a schedule of workshops. My company puts on a lot of workshops, um, and you can see the different topics. We've got the descriptions of all our different workshops. A lot of times people um, like to think or they assume that because I'm working on social that it means I'm only working with folks with autism spectrum disorders, and I, from the very beginning of my work, I've always been much broader than that, and I really look at these kids much more holistically. So um, I really look at the learning processes and um, get really good reviews for the speaking as I try to use a pretty good sense of humor, and I'm very down to earth, and I don't wear rose-colored glasses, I just... Call it as I see it and deal with the realities of what we have to to work on with our kids.
1: Well, and I want to say that I've enjoyed watching you and your work evolve and grow through the years. And the rose-colored glasses, you're not so enamored with one thing that you're afraid to grow and continue. And that's why I'm so excited of the direction with the social nuances and the twice exceptional and, and the in the individuals who who actually struggle because they are the ones who are on the fringes rather than so obviously outside of mainstream. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, a- I think we all have to just keep evolving and the best students the, the the best learning I have is not reading an article it's actually just working with my students and listening to them. And observing them, and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes noticing that what they have to say isn't in tune, in step with their reality, and sometimes it's very in step with their reality, and trying to sort all that out. So um, then we go to the research and keep learning there too. But you know, we've all got to be open to not getting stuck in a belief system that may not hold up. As you have to watch kids evolve as we evolve, right? But
0: well michelle we are so grateful that you have given us this time this evening and i know that our listeners are just going to be overjoyed at everything they're going to have to listen to this two and three times to get all of the information <laughs> i have got to talk
2: fast i'm sorry no
0: it's <laughs> wonderful it's wonderful and we do too and we're um you know as, as you just mentioned the real experience comes in when you're working with your students and as i was listening to you i actually um i sort of teared up tonight thinking you know i was reminded of as a parent what i've gone through and and you're just so refreshing to validate how we feel about our kids and you know as authors and speakers for us it's easy to get caught up in and helping everyone and, you know, forgetting sometimes what started us in, in this journey in the first place, and that is our own frustration and struggles with our children. And right. and you validate that so well. And as a, as a mom, I'm thankful for, for you and for that.
2: Well, thank you. And I'll just end by saying in, in all my understanding and all that I keep learning, I still at the end of the day want to hold my kids accountable, my students, for having to take on their own learning. And as much yes. as we want to help and ease their pain, they've really got to take on the work themselves. So as our kids get older, if the child isn't working harder than any other member of the team, then we've got to work with that kid on how they can work harder to help themselves. Excellent
0: point. Excellent point. Did you want to add to that, Rebecca, and say goodnight? No,
1: I was just saying that's exactly true. And I just appreciate you taking your time to speak with us and to share your information with our listeners. And I'm going to encourage everyone to visit your website. It is such a resource-rich site. And um, it's just there's great things there. Thank you, Michelle.
2: Thank you, guys. Thank take you. Care. Have a
1: great evening.
2: Thank you Have so much. Have a good much. school year y'all. All right. Take okay. care. Bye. Good night. Night.